Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Why do countries build fences and walls at their border? And under what conditions are those walls and fences likely to work as intended? These questions are obviously topical right now, with the U.S.-Mexico border a hot-button issue in the U.S. presidential election and the Syrian refugee crisis dominating discussion in Europe. But fences and their effectiveness have largely remained off the radar of any rigorous academic study, that is, until now. In the most recent edition of the journal International Security, political scientists Ron Hassner and Jason Wittenberg of UC Berkeley compiled what is the first ever data set of what they called four to five boundaries constructed between countries since 1945. Ron Hassner is on the line with me to discuss this study and the implications of some of their key findings, including the fact that we are now in the midst of a fortified boundary building boom. This is a fun conversation. I really enjoyed the process of dissecting an academic paper with the author, so definitely expect more of these kinds of episodes in the future. And as always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out the archives and send me a note. Now here is my conversation with political scientist Ron Hessner. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You might think of a fortified boundary as being halfway along the continuum between a regular civilian, uh, completely unfortified border fence, as you might find uh, on the border, as you might have found, say, on the border between. Uh, Germany and Austria uh, 30 years ago, and a fully fortified, militarized boundary, as you would find between North Korea and South Korea. Somewhere along that continuum uh, is a pretty fortified physical obstacle that's designed to slow down and impede the movement of individuals or small groups, but it's probably not strong enough to stop a full-out militarized assault, uh, even if it's a pretty small militarized assault. So we're not talking about like a DMZ between North Korea and South Korea. No, no, that's the extreme case. No, we're talking about something much smaller, a series of barbed wire, pretty high fences, perhaps electrified. Here and there, there might be a trench. Here and there, there might be a police post. Uh, The thing might be surveyed by cameras. It's going to certainly... Uh, stop illegal immigration uh, unless the immigrants are very, very sly. Uh, 
it will slow down uh, terrorists and insurgents. They're going to have to spend a while poking holes into that kind of barrier. And by the time they do, you will have detected them and then you can deal with them in some way or other. And so you and your uh, co-author, Jason Wittenberg, identify 51 of these barriers that have been constructed since 1945? That is correct. Is this the... That is correct. Has anyone studied this before? Okay, so the first data set of its sort. Has anyone studied these sorts of barriers before in an academic setting? Not really. There's been great interest in militarized barriers. You know, lots of ink spilled on the Maginot Line and the Siegfried Line, uh, much written, of course, on the Great Wall of China and Hadrian's Wall in, in England, which the Romans built, or in general, the Roman, the Roman boundary walls. Um, very little current writing, and I suspect the reason has to do with these sort of strange fads and trends in the study of geopolitics and the study of geography. The current fad is to think of borders as becoming increasingly permeable. People are traveling everywhere. Products are produced across borders and then consumed elsewhere. Diseases spread across borders. Wars cross borders. Refugees certainly cross borders. And so the general notion has been that borders have become less and less significant. And certainly, if they matter at all, they matter as symbols and not as real physical obstacles. Uh, nonetheless, despite this claim uh, from my colleagues in the geography department, our data shows a vastly accelerating trend in the construction of fortified barriers, which are very physical and are designed to stop people from moving from one state to another. And I, I'd like to get into that later in this conversation, but, but first I'd like to ask you, I mean, going into the research and, and compiling this data set, what were your assumptions initially about why countries create fortified barriers? So the most prominent barrier, uh, other than perhaps the U.S.-Mexico barrier, uh, the most prominent and most widely discussed barrier in the media is actually one of the smaller and less significant barriers in the data set, and that's the Israeli barrier along the West Bank, uh, which is often that has a whole variety of names depending on your political inclination. And... Um, there, the general impression we had was uh, this was built by the state of Israel in order to defend Israeli citizens against a uh, very heavy wave of suicide bombing in the 1990s. And once the barrier reached significant levels of completion, the suicide bombing stopped. Because guess what? Suicide bombers cannot walk through walls. Uh, it, just, it just impeded their movement, made them easier to detect, forced them to go through uh, checkpoints at which they could be searched and apprehended. Uh, so our assumption was that, um, first of all, that this barrier was pretty unique, and second of all, that other countries must be motivated by similar security concerns. It tr- that turns out to be true of some countries. It turns out not to be true of many other countries. And, and so what are these other motivations? What other motivations did you discover uh, to be relevant and, and resonant among countries right. that are building so what the, the walls? What the barriers all seem to have in common, because the term is very vague, is they are designed to stop uh, what Peter Andreas has called CTAs, clandestine transnational actors. So we're not talking about militaries. Uh, we're usually not talking about sort of individual entrepreneurs. We're talking about small groups of people uh, who were who involved in some sort of shady business, whether it's crossing a border illegally for a purpose of immigration 
or for the smuggling of goods, or crossing the border in order to do some harm. That is, they are terrorists or insurgents. Um, and that's the thing all these barriers are in common. So now the question is, proportionately speaking, have most of these countries set up these barriers to stop violence? Or have they set up these barriers in order to prevent economically motivated immigration? Or, and this is an accusation that's very often leveled at Israel by Palestinians, are these barriers just used to demarcate your territory in a forceful way and try to steal some extra land? Mm-hmm. Like like a make a de facto barrier where there's a dispute. Make a de facto border. barrier. Now, this is not very persuasive in the Israeli case because uh, the Israeli barrier uh, barely eats into four, maybe five percent of the West Bank. But nonetheless, when, when, when Israelis have made the point, you know, this, this is actually quite effective at stopping terrorism cold, the response was, that's not really why you're doing it. You're doing it in order to mm-hmm. grab land. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even though this claim is not particularly persuasive, in the Israeli case, we wanted to, that was yet another variable we included. So what do we look for? We look for large disparities in income between builders and their targets. We looked at uh, terrorism inflow from target into builder. Uh, We looked at territorial disputes to see whether these boundaries crop up where there are territorial disputes, and they do sometimes. Um, We looked at then a whole range of the usual suspect variables, rich versus poor, powerful versus weak, we looked at the religion of the building country and the target. We looked at the region they're in, just trying to detect whatever patterns we could. And so, so what, really, we were asking two what questions. did you find? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Right. We're asking two questions. The first big question was, is there a trend in the construction of these barriers? And the answer there is clearly yes. And we have this sort of very, I think, intuitively appealing graph early on in our paper. It shows these barriers are being built faster, longer, deeper, more expensive by more and more countries every year and, and at an accelerated pace. Uh, and that suggests that countries perhaps believe that these barriers are worthwhile, and it seems to suggest that they're copying from one another, but we can have a conversation about why that might be. And clearly, barriers are in fashion now. That's beyond doubt. So the next, second question was then, who builds it? When does this building take place? And we discovered that even though often territorial disputes are part of the story, and very often terrorism is part of the story, the most significant variable is uh, economic differences, differences in wealth between the wealthy country that builds a barrier and the poor neighbor. For us, the paradigmatic example is a a series of fences that Spain built around two cities that it still possesses in Morocco. Uh, so there are little two islands of span, tiny islands of Spanish sovereignty, uh, and uh, poor Moroccans who aspire to a better life wish to cross over into these cities in order to gain EU citizenship. And not just Moroccans; these people from throughout Africa try to. Uh, That's to right. Flock but first, they have to get to first, they have to get to Morocco. Yeah, and so, so actually, um, will you talk about because th- that that case is is fascinating to me because um, the it the, is the data that you compile and the evidence seems seems pretty unambiguously clear. Um, so can you can you just describe um, what those two enclaves are and how those so, yeah, okay. fences? So I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing their names correctly because my my Spanish leaves something to be desired, but they're called uh, Keuta and Melila. They're two towns, not very big, um, and they've seen massive refugee inflow, tens of thousands 
of refugees who make their way to Moroccan soil and then want to cross over into these cities and claim refugee status, completely overwhelming the two cities, which are old colonial um, leftovers that Spain has in Morocco. The idea is that once the African migrants or even Moroccans make it to the Spanish territory, they can claim asylum and, and be sort of... That's right. You know, able right. to gain entry to other European Union countries. Exactly. And so the European Union has paid for these uh, cities to be fenced off, and it's, you know, uh, three um, uh, three uh, belt uh, cordons of um, concentric, uh, barbed, very tall barbed wire fences that are electrified and electronically monitored, and there are cameras and motion sensors, and occasionally a group of very... Uh, very aggressive refugees will manage to either dig under them or climb over them. But when they do, uh, the the presence of these fences allows police to respond. Uh, and uh, and unless they're very entrepreneurial, it's it's really a daunting challenge to cross these barriers. So the idea is to discourage, uh, uh, make it difficult. Or if all else fails, uh, at least uh, be alerted to the presence of people trying to cross over. There's no claim in our paper that these barriers uh, stop terrorism or stop immigration. Obviously, they can't do that. Uh, but that's uh, you know that's a strongman argument. They're, they're not designed to do that. They're designed to deter uh, or slow down the entry of, of outsiders. So your paper also makes a claim, um, probably maybe the most controversial, or at least to me, one of the more interesting claims, because uh, not necessarily the most intuitive claim of your paper, because I think maybe the, the, the question of economic disparities between countries is, you know, a somewhat intuitive assumption. That's why, you know, you would yeah. want to build, build uh, walls or, or barriers. Uh, but you're finding that, uh, that the religion of the country, specifically Muslim countries or countries bordering Muslim countries, are more likely to build barriers. Can you yes. describe that finding and, and why you think that right. is? Right, so it's, it's, it, uh, it's not a... Um, we don't have a good argument. We don't have a good causal story to tell. Uh, we have some guesses. It was a variable we threw into the analysis because, again, the most prominent of these barriers is sort of portrayed incorrectly, I think, as a sort of Jewish-Muslim barrier. And so we were curious whether... Uh, whether religion played into it in any way. And one of the more curious artifacts of the analysis uh, is that the vast majority of targets, that is the countries against which barriers are set up, are Muslim, and more than half of the builders are Muslim. Um, and this is curious. It has in great part to do with disparities of wealth. So, you know, you think of some of the more uh, oil-wealthy uh, Muslim countries, uh, sort of Saudi Arabia, and then on the other side of the border is Yemen. So one of the here, poorest countries in the right. Region. So here, Islam is merely correlates with the presence of oil. Uh, some of it certainly has to do with the correlation between certain types of Islam, radical Salafi Islam, and terrorism or insurgency. So that would explain a whole different set of barriers. For example, the barriers around. Uh, Pakistan, or the barriers around Iran, um, and some of it has to do with refugees. So, um, again, it's very hard to tell why countries set up barriers. Uh, we, we simply offered our, our best guess, 
and noted the patterns that jumped out at us from the data. What what strikes me about that particular conclusion, uh, and, and I assume that you wrote this and studied this before, the current European uh, refugee crisis, Absolutely, is that you know, yes. here you have a country like Hungary, which is building a wall, a barrier, uh, on its Serbian border, though not to keep Serbians out, but to keep Muslims out. Um, so it That's seems right. to be motivated by like an anti-Muslim animus in, in at least some particular way. But yep. you're saying that that's not, that's not unique, uh, at least to Hungary. That's something that's sort of international. Yes, and, and very much characterizes other Muslim countries. Uh, now, I should note one thing we haven't quite discussed at length, and, and, and maybe your audience isn't that interested. But, of course, our analysis involves not only all pairs of countries that are now separated by a barrier, but it also involves, as a control, all pairs of countries where there could have been a barrier, but there wasn't. Uh, so that we're not just selecting on the dependent variable, right? We're interested both in where were barriers built and where were they not built. Mm -hmm. So we can draw statistical inferences from both of these cases. What we cannot do, sadly, and we would have loved to know, is, for example, countries that considered building barriers but rejected the idea. Or countries that are about to start building barriers or countries that tried to build them but failed because they didn't have enough money because this, this construction is quite expensive. So our findings are as, as good as we can make them. There are questions that we wanted to answer with this, with this data set that we simply couldn't answer. Uh, and I, I suspect they may be unanswerable, such as the question, when do these barriers work? When are they most effective? That's almost impossible to address. Um. One thing that you, you do find, and, and again, we alluded to it earlier, a, a novel finding of your paper was the data set itself, and, and you finding that, um, you know, of the 51 barriers constructed since 1945, half were constructed since uh, 2000? That's right. What That's accounts right. So for the barrier boom that we're, we're currently in? Very hard to tell. Very hard to tell. Now, remember, most countries don't like talking about their barriers. Even we Americans, who are very open in our conversation about barriers, are sort of ashamed about the very idea, and many of us find it repugnant uh, for aesthetic reasons, for human rights reasons, uh, because we have this strange notion uh, that borders should be open to all and we should be really welcoming, even though we're by no means doing any of that. Um, so, and, and particular countries that are fighting illegal immigration, fighting terrorism, wouldn't share with us what made them construct a barrier? Uh, what, you know, what sort of committee did they have that got together? So we have a lot of good information from the United States and Israel because those are liberal democracies. They're transparent. You can see these discussions happening in the open. You learn more about their deliberations. Uh, Israel had had a very good experience with a much smaller fence that they had built around Gaza that worked well and then began implementing it uh, elsewhere and saw equal success elsewhere. Um, Preceding Israel, Morocco had probably built what is to this day the most impressive barrier on the planet, what is which that? is a massive, many thousand mile long berm, B-E-R-M is what it's called, the berm. It's a sort of sand, rock, uh, and then, you know, electronics um, wall, in essence, that crisscrosses the, the Western Saharan Desert. Where, where Morocco was fighting Polisario, which was sort of an indigenous Sahrawi insurgency movement. 
And the Moroccans, in the middle of the world's most inhospitable location, started uh, essentially segmenting off Western Sahara into thousand-mile square segments of desert by means of this giant berm and slowly, slowly squeezed the insurgency into the corner until the insurgency collapsed and fell apart. And that cost, as you said, about 40% of their total GDP. Correct. Correct. So, it took them a, a solid 30, 40 years to do. Uh, and, uh, and they, you know, spend a lot of money doing it. That's right. And so if Morocco can do it, which is by no means a rich country, it's not surprising that Saudi Arabia looked at this and Egypt looked at this and Iran looked at this and um, Afghanistan looked at this and thought, you know, I, we can probably do something like this too. God knows we have undesirable individuals and groups crossing our borders that we would like to know about. So I think prior to that, Saudi Arabia would have never dared to try to demarcate its border uh, with, with Yemen because it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of deadly desert. Um, but they did. We have another suspicion, and we'd be very curious to learn more about this. We have a suspicion that a lot of these barriers are built by the same companies. We don't know who they are. We don't know which countries they come from. We don't know how much they cost. Uh, but we suspect that there must be uh, organizations in the civilian sector that specialize in that kind of construction. There you go, a barrier industrial complex to be discovered. That's right. That's right. It wouldn't be surprising uh, um, if, if countries borrowed, learned from one another, you know, this company's great, this company's very good at putting fences up along rivers, or this other one is very good at cutting off mountain passes. Um, so, so that may explain the boom, but there really seems to be uh, a spread of a norm. It's almost like states are talking to one another, learning from one another, and emulating this practice. And there will be a point in the near future when it's going to become very hard to scoff at these barriers because every country in its right mind will have put one up. They're becoming so common. They're becoming so prevalent that it's really not surprising anymore. Sort of like a, to, a peer pressure to create uh, right. barriers. I, I so from to, the moment we'd yeah. handed in the first draft of the paper to international security until the paper came out, there were seven new barriers. So we had to constantly sort of update uh, the paper as it was going out to publication because country after country after country was considering, and, and especially, of course, countries that had already had a good experience with a barrier on one border would then implement the barrier on another border. I did want to finish by asking you about the U.S.-Mexico barrier. Um, right. You earlier said that it's hard to claim whether or not a barrier um, you know, will be effective, uh, but you, your, your paper seems to cast doubt on the potential effectiveness of this barrier. Why is that? So several issues. The one is it's very long. It's very long. Uh, Again, the most discussed barrier in the literature, the, the Israel-West Bank barrier, is a couple hundred miles long. And, and the terrain is not particularly challenging. There are no rivers to ford. There are no mountains to cross. You know, it goes a little uphill, downhill. It's, it's, it's undramatic. The Moroccan barrier is massive. And the U.S. barrier would be even greater and would cross some really, really difficult terrain. Uh, it seems to us, and here we're really in the realm of guesswork, logical guesswork, uh, that for a barrier to be effective, two things would be really helpful. It would be helpful if you could somehow monitor both sides of the barrier. 
because your concern is people sneaking up on the barrier, people gradually digging under it, uh, people ramming into the barrier at great speed if, if it's a pretty flimsy barrier. So if you could elicit the cooperation of the state on the other side, or if, as Morocco did, if you could have your police or your army patrol both sides of the barrier, uh, now it's very, very hard to get through. Uh, that's also what the French did when they built their barriers in Algeria. They essentially, they, they placed the barrier not at the most remote place, but slightly more inland so that their forces could patrol both sides of the barrier. Uh, so that's really helpful. And that's something the United States can't do with the Mexican border, right? The, Mexican, the Mexicans will not tolerate U.S. border police patrolling the other side of the barrier. The other thing I, we think that would be very helpful is it's naturally if your barrier were placed at the only entry point to your country. Uh, if there's another entry point, then all the barrier really does is shift illegal movement from that border to some other border. The U.S., for better or worse, has thousands of entry points, mm-hmm. airports, harbors, the Mexican border, the Canadian border. Um, you would have to seal off the entire country. Otherwise, CTAs, these clandestine transnational actors, are just going to pick the, the point of least resistance. That probably maybe gets like a little more expensive. That's right. That doesn't mean that the barrier is nonsensical. You might say, you know, I feel pretty confident about our ability to stem illegal immigration through our airports and through the Canadian border. Uh, it's really the Mexican border I'm most worried about. And then I'd say, okay, fine, give it a shot, put up a barrier there, uh, but then expect that all of, that this isn't really going to stem uh, the supply problem. The, the immigrants are still going to be there. There's still going to be people who want to come into the United States. They might now think twice. It might be a lot more expensive for them to come in. Uh, or they might just find a loophole that you didn't consider. So both of those factors, the, 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 all three factors, the cost and length of this border, the difficulty of patrolling both sides of it, as opposed to just waiting on your side until the hole opens up, and third, the availability of other ways of getting in means that this border is going to be going to be somewhat effective, uh, but I doubt it's going to be cost-effective by any definition. Uh, well, Ron, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Love the paper. Super interesting. Thanks for, for providing this new data set in the world. Thank you. You're super, super welcome. Thank you all for listening and apologies for the audio quality of this episode. I know if you're a regular listener, you know this is an aberration. Some gremlins in the line or something. It couldn't be fixed. I apologize for it, but we have clear lines in the future. Thank you again to everyone who is leaving a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. It helps other people similarly interested in foreign policy discover the podcast. So please leave a review. Thanks so much. and We'll see you next time. Bye.